Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Our children are released for kids in training. The rest of us, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We're going to be turning to the book of Mark. We started a sermon series here in Mark a couple of weeks ago. Today's text is going to be Mark chapter 1 verses 12 to 20. I would ask you if you're willing and if you're able to do so, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Just the very physical act of standing reminds us that we are in the presence of God's infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. And so when we read God's word, it's as though we're listening to the voice of God himself, the same authority, the same power in the written word as in the spoken word of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Let's listen now to Holy Scripture. The spirits immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And when going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please let us, in like manner, be willing to drop our nets, to leave our boats, and to do anything that we might follow you and be with you. Lord, we recognize your word, that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'll try not to be too jealous, but I did get to go to the, uh, the DMV this week. I know you're excited about that. I know you're jealous. Try not to break the, uh, the commandments on coveting, but I got to go to the DMV. I got to get a new driver's license this week. Boy, that's a test on your patience, isn't it? Hope nobody works there, by the way. I don't mean that as an insult. It's a bit of a test, though. You have to stand in line. You have to wait. There's a big line, you gotta take a number, you gotta sit down, you have to wait for everybody ahead of you to be called. Nobody's really in the mood to go to the DMV. Nobody's really excited to be there. And so you just kinda have to wait. And then they call you up and you have to prove that you really exist by providing the right 
documentation. We're all just really waiting in line to pay the government to fix the potholes in the road. That's really what we're doing there. And you get to take a mug shot, though. This is my favorite part. If you've never, never taken a mug shot before, it's pretty exciting. Uh, it took my picture, and I'm not even, not even kidding. They got half of my, a little bit more than half of my face in the frame, six inches of blue space above me, and the guy said, do you want to get a retake? And I said, nope, not really. <laughs> DMV is a bit of a test. A test of your patience. It's a, really a test of all of the fruit of the Spirit when you go to a place like, like this. Necessary as it is, of course, very necessary, but your love will be tested. Your peace will be tested. Your patience will be tested. Your kindness will be tested. Your gentleness, your self-control, all of these things are going to be tested in that moment where you're in a place and you don't necessarily really want to be there. And we all go through these moments in life. We all go through these times uh, where we have to endure some kind of a trial, whether it's an examination or whether it's a time of probation or whether it's a testing or a temptation towards a certain sin. We're all going to find that there are these moments in life where what is inside us is going to be revealed, the kind of person that we are, the kind of character that we have, what is inside of the heart is going to be revealed and going to be exposed. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, though we might think of it as a bad thing. But in fact, in the scriptures, God does test people from time to time. We can think back to Abraham, if you remember the story in Genesis 21, 22, I think it is, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac, and the Bible says it was God who tested him there. And it's not only there, but the people of God, Israel, were tested in the wilderness for those 40 years. And in fact, the Bible even begins with one of the most significant tests of all time. We read it this morning for our Old Testament scripture. It was the test of Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a period of probation. And they failed that test. They failed in a manner that was absolutely cataclysmic with devastating consequences for all of humanity because in that moment, Adam was being tested, tempted as the federal head of all humanity and whatever he would do would reap serious consequences for the rest of us. And so we who are his progeny today, we are still suffering in one sense because of the failure of Adam in his time of testing and probation. Thank you, God, though. However, praise be to God that he sent Christ to be the second Adam for us, to redo the test, so to speak, from the direct temptation of Satan. And so that's what we're going to study this morning, this beautiful passage from Mark uh, chapter 1. If you close your Bible, let's go ahead and open those Bibles right back up because primarily what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be working with verses 12 and 13. Uh, we read all the way down to 20, but I'm just going to tell you right now that probably most of what we're going to have to say is going to be focused on those two verses, 12 and 13. And so really what I'm going to do is I'm going to do kind of a word-by-word exposition of these two important lines from Scripture. Now, just to set the, uh, the context here, both historically and in terms of Mark as a piece of literature, uh, this temptation scene comes immediately on the heels of Jesus' baptism, which we studied last week together as a church. Uh, Jesus was baptized, and you remember the scene just a paragraph before, very important paragraph where Jesus is baptized. In fact, all three persons of the Trinity are there in that moment. The Spirit of God, the Scripture says, is descending on Jesus like a dove. 
Jesus is being baptized, again, as our federal head. He's identifying with us covenantally through baptism. And the Father, God the Father himself, actually speaks aloud. One of the rare times in Scripture where this occurs, the Father speaks aloud. And remember, what what did we study last week? What does the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Exactly. And Mark tells us in our text today that what we're about to read occurs immediately after that. In other words, with very little pause or break, Jesus is essentially going to go straight out of the water, right into the wilderness to endure his period of temptation and testing. And then what follows this, and I I wish we had more time to do this, perhaps you could study this for your family devotions later today at the, uh, at the dinner table. But Jesus then calls his disciples, having passed the temptation, the, the probation uh, in the wilderness, Jesus is then going to authoritatively begin to call his disciples to him to follow after him. But we're not gonna get there quite this morning. We're gonna focus primarily on the temptation. So children, if you're gonna draw a picture today in your bulletin, uh, you might want to draw the wild animals that are described in verse 13. Draw a picture of the wild animals or maybe even the angels that are described in this passage. But let's dig in, and I'm going to make a few important observations about this text. There is notes for you in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along that way. But first of all, let's observe the sovereignty of God's Spirit in this event. The sovereignty of God's Spirit in this event. It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And so if we were to ask, who is it that led Christ into this period of testing, we would answer that it was the Holy Spirit of God. And that may surprise you a little bit because typically what we think, and this is an overgeneralization, it's not always true, but we're tempted to think that usually it's God who brings good things into our life and it's the evil one who brings bad things into our life. But, that's, that, but that rule doesn't apply universally, does it? Because sometimes it is God that brings difficult challenges into our lives. And conversely, sometimes it's Satan that brings great comfort and affluence into our lives to ruin us. And so here the text says it's this Holy Spirit that drove him into the wilderness. Now that word drove right there, you might want to underline it in your Bible. That's an interesting word. The word that's underneath it is the verb ekbalo. It's a very violent word. It actually means to throw out or to cast out. Ekbalo, the Spirit threw out. Jesus into the wilderness. In fact, normally when we get to this word in the New Testament, we translate it cast out. Something is cast out. Same word, by the way. Don't get carried away with this, but it is the same word that's used to describe Jesus throwing out the demons when he does exorcism. So this is a very, this is a very strong word for Mark to choose. Stronger than Matthew's version, stronger than Luke's version. In Matthew and Luke, it says that the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. But here, cast out. Why? Why is that? Is the Spirit of God angry at Jesus? No. Is is the Spirit of God uh, divided or or conflicting with Christ? Absolutely not. The point here that we want to understand is that this testing did not happen by accident. This was a divinely appointed meeting in the sovereignty of God and God's plan for redemption history. This was an appointment that must needs take place. This was an unavoidable moment. And so Jesus didn't wander out into the wilderness. He wasn't tricked out to go there by Satan. No, it was the Spirit of God who divinely appointed this moment. And so we might say, well, why would the Spirit of God do that to Jesus? 
Well, the answer is because this event that's about to take place here is of epochal importance in the redemption of history. Jesus has to go back and be what we might say the second Adam for us. So just as the first Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, we already read that passage this morning, now Jesus has to go back and he has to essentially redo as the new federal head, the covenantal head of his church. Jesus is going to recapitulate where Adam fell and we're gonna see that in a number of ways as we study this text together. So first of all, the sovereignty of his spirit. Let's move on to the severity of his surroundings. Where did the spirit drive Jesus? Well, the text says in verse 12 that the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Now, if we're gonna do a compare and contrast with Adam falling in the garden, well, there's a whole lot of things to talk about. Uh, One way of comparison, we might say, is that both Adam and Jesus, whatever choice they end up making here, is going to have massive repercussions for all of humanity. Okay, so we might say, well, that's an obvious point of comparison. We might also say that a point of comparison is the directness of the temptation. Both of them are gonna deal directly with Satan. We're gonna come back to that thought in just a moment. But even as we're doing some comparison, there is some sense in which we can also contrast these two events. For instance, when Adam fell in his period of probation, he fell in the garden. Now let's just pause there and think on that for a moment. Adam fell in the garden. Adam had every advantage. You want fruit? You've got fruit everywhere, except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You want shade? You've got shade. You want vegetables? Go check out in the garden. You want water? There's rivers everywhere in the Garden of Eden. Go back and read the text if you don't believe me. You need resources? There was gold there, it says, in the beginning chapters of Genesis. Adam had, moreover, his wife standing right next to him. He had Eve, this beautiful woman that was supposed to be his helper. And so if he, at any point, needed to consult her for some advice, well, she was supposed to be there to help him out, wasn't she? Adam had a pre-fallen body. He was strong enough to crush the head of Satan. He could have done that. Of course, we know he did not. And not only that, but as if that isn't enough, when you read the first or the third chapter of Genesis, it actually says that they could hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, whatever that means, and I don't fully understand that myself, it means that they knew that the presence of God was there. And so that encouragement of divine presence, the threat of divine judgment, all of that was there for Adam. All of that could have, might have led him to make the right choice, but as we know, because we know our Bibles and we we certainly know our history, Adam fell and he fell hard. And we fell in him and with him, says the shorter catechism of Westminster. We fell in him and with him. Now, compare that to Christ. Christ is not being tempted here in a garden, is he? He doesn't have all of these wonderful resources, but he is in fact alone. He doesn't have a wife there to help or to encourage. In fact, he has no friend alongside of him. Jesus has to do this alone. Paul had Silas, Adam had Eve, David had Jonathan, Elijah had Elisha, but who is Jesus to consult here for help and strength? Well, he has to face this alone. He has to face this in the wilderness, a dry land, an arid land. He does not have the benefit of the resources of food. In fact, The scripture even says in Matthew and Luke's version that he fasted for 40 days during this encounter. You remember those Snickers commercials? 
You're not yourself when you're hungry? How many of you can identify with that? Yeah, when we get hungry, we tend to have a little bit less patience, a little bit less self-control. We snap a little quicker, a little easier. And so Jesus in his incarnate body, weak, tired, and yet he is going to endure for us. Third, let's look at the duration, the duration of the testing. Verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days. Now as a general rule, this is generally true, the longer we are tempted with something, the more we might be inclined to give in to it. The longer a temptation persists, the more likely we are to give into it. If you had to resist a certain temptation, let's say it was alcohol or pornography or the sexual advances of a colleague, just whatever it is that, that you know, might tend to tempt you. If you had to endure that temptation for five minutes, could you do it? Probably could. But if you had to endure that temptation again and again and over and over, then what happens is, unfortunately, as, as sinners, Christ is not a sinner, he's perfect, but we who are sinners, we tend to get broken down. We tend to get worn out. We tend to give way. That's why Potiphar's wife, remember the temptation of Joseph, she came to him day after day after day because she knew that the more she suggested it, the more likely Joseph would be to fall to that sin. Praise God that he did not fall, but David did after being allured by Bathsheba, after only what? An evening? And so Satan knows this about ourselves. Satan knows this about human beings, that we can be worn out, which is why this temptation is particularly difficult for Jesus because it comes again and again and again. And in the Greek it says that he was being tempted by Satan. In other words, throughout that period. Now if you read the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, it almost sounds like the temptation of Satan comes at the end of the 40 days, but both of those things could be true. The conversation recorded by Matthew and Luke might have happened at the end of the 40 days, but it's also possible that Satan was coming at him again and again and again and again, attempting to wear him down, but he could not. 40 days, by the way, is not just an arbitrary number. 40 days has huge Old Testament significance. Think back to Israel again. Christ has to be the new Israel for us, the greater Israel. Israel was tempted in the wilderness for what? 40 days? No, 40 years. Moses went up onto the mountain of Sinai for 40 days, and it was only 40 short days by the time the people of God exchanged the glory of God for what? A golden calf. 40 days was Elijah's time of testing by the Wadi Cherith, by, fed by the ravens. You remember the story? And so 40 days here has huge symbolic Old Testament significance. Again, the whole idea here, get the big picture. Christ has to be the greater Moses, the greater Israel, the real prophet, the true priest to come for his people. Fourth, now let's notice the direct nature of the assault. It says that he was tempted by Who? by Satan, the slanderer, the devil. Now, here's some good news for you. Most of us are probably not ever going to be tempted by Satan himself. Say, oh really? Well, why not? Well, because Satan isn't God. Satan isn't a God. Uh, our great and living God, he has the attribute of omnipresence, which means that God can literally be everywhere. But Satan is a finite spirit being. He's a fallen, 
angel. He is one single solitary demon. And so the, the, the chance that any of our lives are important enough for Satan to tempt us directly, eh, probably pretty small, to be honest. Uh, now, Adam was tempted directly by Satan. Job was tempted directly by Satan. Judas was tempted directly by Satan. And Jesus here tempted directly by Satan. But for the most of us, probably any ordinary old demons are going to be the ones that we're going to have to face off with. I'm not suggesting that you'll never have satanic temptation or demonic temptation. I'm sure that we will all encounter that. The fact of the matter is, though, because of our sinful nature, we really don't need a lot of help, do we? And yet Christ, he must endure for 40 days the slanders, the lies, the wicked spewing filth of Satan for all of this time. And what did Satan do to try to get Jesus to fall? Well, Mark's gospel is the briefest of all, and so Mark's gospel, interestingly, does not even include the conversation. Now, we might ask, why didn't Mark give that conversation that Matthew and Luke do? My simple answer to that question would probably be because for Mark, it is so assured that Jesus is going to pass the test, that he doesn't even bother to record the conversation. But if we flip over to Matthew, and let's do this together as a church here, uh, let's look at some of the things that Satan brought against Jesus. Matthew chapter four is another uh, in, uh, account of the temptation of Jesus Christ. And in this, in this very interesting passage, Satan really brings three tests to Jesus. First of all, there is the identity test where Satan tempts Jesus. This is Matthew 4, 3. If you are the son of God, so there's this temptation to deny his identity as the son of God. Later on in verse 6, a Satan tries to quote scripture and so there will be a test related to the authority of God's word. Remember, that's exactly what he got Adam and Eve on, that one right there. The authority of God's word. Will you trust it or not? And then the third test that Satan brings to him is the test of worship or the worship of God's name exclusively. And Satan tries to get Jesus to bow the knee to him instead of the great and the living God. And of course, Satan fails on all three of those attempts to get our Lord to fail. Praise be to God. Now before we move to application, I'm gonna do that just in a moment or so, I do wanna mention a couple other things that are interesting by way of comparison with the Garden of Eden. First of all, if we flip back to Mark again, um, it says that he was with the wild animals. Did you notice that? Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 13 in Mark chapter one. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals. Now Mark is the only gospel writer to include that phrase. That is a uniquely Markan line that Matthew and Luke don't have. What's the point? What's, why did Mark throw that in there? He's with the wild animals. Well, if, again, if you think back to the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam was with animals that were named and tamed. It was only after the fall that God pronounces the judgments on Adam and Eve and even on the natural world itself. And so here the idea is that even nature has been tainted by the fall and Christ has to contend even with the fears that wild animals might bring to the mortal consciousness. And then there's this line here I want to mention as well that he was being ministered to by the angels. See that in verse 13? The angels were ministering to him. Again, reference to the Garden of Eden, only this time it's exactly the opposite. You remember the story in Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve fell, what happened to Adam and Eve? Where did they go? They were what? 
banished from the garden. And who was there marking off the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back in? But surprise, the cherubim of God with a flaming sword so that Adam and Eve could not come back into the presence of God. And so here, the angels are not banishing Christ, but they are ministering to him. The idea here is that uh, sin will always have its consequences, but obedience will always have its rewards. And all of this Christ does for us. Theoretical question. Could Christ have fallen here? Is it possible that Jesus might have failed this test? Be very careful how you answer that. Trick question. Could he have fallen? Well, I want to be very, very careful, very precise how I deal with this question. With respect to his human nature, we might say, well, yes, Jesus could have, with his incarnate arm, lifted bread to mouth if he wanted. Jesus' legs were fully competent and able to leap off the pinnacle of the temple and throw himself down. Jesus' knees were fully capable of bending down to Satan as Satan challenged him to do. And so we might say that he was able with, with that respect, but, but be very careful. We don't want to blaspheme here. Be very careful. With regard to his, his divine nature, with regard to his holiness, with regard to his absolute moral purity, with regard to, with regard to his relationship with Father and Holy Spirit as one God in three persons, our Holy Trinity, then we can say that there is absolutely no way that Jesus would have or could have fallen in this moment. It was impossible. It was impossible. So what does this have to do with us? Well, let me, let me say a few words of application here before we close in just a few moments. First of all, Look how much your Savior loves you, that he would go through this for you. Look at his endurance through this direct assault from Satan. Look at his endurance, his perseverance through the frailty of his body as he is worn out, tired from the fasting. Look at this as an evidence of Christ's great love for you. You know, we, we can generally say something to this effect that we know how much people love for us, how, how, how much people love us by what they're willing to go through for us. Is that right? Does that make sense? You know how, so much, how much somebody loves you based on how much they're willing to go through for you. I had a friend one time, he was, a, he was an elder back in uh, my church down south, and I had mentioned one time we were at a session meeting uh, just as we were closing out, we're all putting our books away and putting our notebooks away. And I had mentioned to the elder that I had to go home. I remember it was a Saturday morning and I had to work on uh, the commode and our plumbing because we had this jam up and I had to go home. I said, I got to get home and change so I can work on, work on this plumbing issue at home. And before I knew it, before I pulled in to my own driveway, 30 seconds later, this elder and a few others are pulling into the driveway too. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? The meeting's over. I said, we're here to help. And I couldn't even believe it. In just a few moments, these guys still have on their meeting clothes and 
One of them's got the commode off of the floor and another one's got his hand reaching into the pipe, grabbing out all kinds of things and scooping out stuff. And another one's out in the yard and he's digging a trench and he's, he's got his work shoes on, his loafers, and he's out digging a trench in my yard. And this was a terrible mess. And I realized, I looked out at my elders and they're all messy. They got uh, dirt and filth and who knows what all over their clothes on a Saturday. They could have been home with their wives or watching college football. I'm sure they wanted to. And the second I saw that, I thought to myself, these guys... They really love me because we know how much somebody loves us by what they're willing to go through for us. And here we have Christ enduring the blasphemies of Satan. Here we have Christ enduring the suffering of his, of his incarnate body. Here we have Christ uh, enduring all of this. And this is not gonna be the end of Christ's suffering in this passage here. Oh no, as we go through Mark, we're gonna find out that Christ is rejected by his family. He's gonna be slandered by men. He's gonna be flogged by the whip. He's gonna be put to the pain of the cross. And all of that, we can say he did for us because he loves us, amen? Second application, the surety of our own testing and temptation you are going to be tempted. You are going to be tested. Perhaps it'll be a test that God brings into your life. I don't know. Maybe it's a temptation to try to destroy you that the enemy is going to bring in your life. I don't know that either. All I know is that temptation is an experience that is common to man. We will all be tempted. We will all have moments where what is inside of us will be exposed either for our good or for our ill. And I will tell you this about Satan. Here's one thing I know about him. When he comes to tempt or his demons come to tempt, they do not play games. They come to destroy. Be very careful here with this. This is not a game. We're not playing around. We're not playing church. Satan will destroy your marriage if he can. Satan will ruin your reputation if he can. Satan will wrench you from your children if he can do it. Satan will condemn your soul to hell if he had the power. He hates us. He hates Christ. He hates the church. But the good news of the gospel is we have a redeemer and a Lord and a deliverer who faced everything Satan had and Satan couldn't touch him. And we can go to that same redeemer when we are tempted, when we're finding that we're in despair, when we find that we, we're exhausted and worn out, we can come to that same Lord and deliver and we don't have to do it on our own strength we don't have to be alone in the wilderness none of us ever has to be alone when we struggle because we have a Christ who has gone through all of it and come out victorious on our behalf and then finally this to just add by way of conclusion here um, you know I don't want to skip over these words here in verses 14 and 15 we didn't get to treat this very much but there is an offer here in the gospel. Because look at this. What happens immediately after Jesus comes out victorious from this period of temptation? We read these verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And here we have, you ready for this? In Mark's gospel, the first words that Jesus says. Okay, Jesus hasn't spoken yet. Go back and check it out for yourself. Jesus hasn't spoken yet. Here are the first spoken words of our Lord according to the Gospel of Mark. And he says this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the Gospel. Friends, you and I, we're gonna fall like Adam. 
We're going to be more like Adam, our forefather Adam, than we are like the perfect and infallible Christ. We're going to fall over and over again in this, in this world. Okay, we're going to mess up. We're going to trip. We're going to fall. We're going to make a mess out of ourselves. We're going to embarrass ourselves, and we're going to, ha- we're going to have to learn what it means to, to repent and to come to him over and over and over again. But here's the good news, is that not only did Jesus win the victory for us, but he's also so gracious and kind that he receives sinners to transform them and to save them and to call them. And that's exactly what he does. In the next paragraph, 16 to 20, Jesus then begins calling men and women and children to follow after him, to make them new, and to transform their lives. Let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, he is our victor, he is the conqueror of the enemy. Even as Jesus defeats him here in the temptation in the wilderness, so also will he defeat him fully and finally at the cross and the empty tomb. And Lord, whenever we are tempted, whenever we are to fall into despair or despondency, let us look to our great conqueror and victor, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name and all God's people said, amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.